Please Leave podcast, home to stories that haunt. These stories may contain graphic depictions of violence or explicit language. Listener discretion is advised. I love the graveyard. You know where you are with the dead. That's what I tell people when they asked why I go there so much. But it's not really true. It's not really that. It's a lot of things. Firstly, it's a really old graveyard. The most recently deceased occupant went into the earth more than 50 years ago, so there's no fresh grief there. No raw, bleeding edges of loss. Secondly, it's usually empty, because lots of people think graveyards are a bit creepy or a bit sad. It would only go there to visit their dead, and most of these dead have been gone so long that their heirs, their would-be visitors, are also dead. I have these two dogs, and they're good dogs, loving dogs, but sometimes they regard my calling them to come as a kind of opt-in enterprise, and they opt out. And they are big dogs, man-sized dogs, and can be scary when they come leaping and scampering to say hi. So it's especially useful to be in a place where there aren't going to be a ton of other people or dogs for them to run off to investigate or harass. And thirdly, I guess it's a bit that you really do know where you are with the dead. There's something to be said for being in an unseen crowd that never asks anything of you or thrusts anything upon you. It's huge, this graveyard. It's actually three interconnected graveyards, all opened one after the other in the mid-1800s. Though the dead only started going into the ground in 1840, people have, as they do, named prior dead, buried elsewhere on their family monuments, so some of those listed died decades before then. There are all kinds of graves. Everything from the massive granite monument to a famous local architect to the small, simple white slabs of the fallen soldiers gigantic monuments, 12 or 14 feet tall, and small flat slabs lying quiet on the earth. Some softer sandstone monuments have been worn smooth by nearly two centuries of weather. Bare rock testifying to nothing but the passage of time, while beside them white marble angels gaze steadily from smooth, blank eyes, looking like their sculptor put his tools down only yesterday. And love it here. The trees, some nearly as old as the oldest graves, tower and shade. The grass, only cut three times a year by the local council. The waves knee-high and is peppered with wildflowers, a lush meadow. It's almost a wild place in the way that many neglected human places become. The birds and foxes and bugs regard this place as theirs moving away only slightly and grudgingly when me and my dog carouse through. Despite the hundreds of straight edges, 
It is a place of crazy angles and lumpen curves. Stones lean like drunks this way and that. Ivy grows mountainous and abundant along the walls and over the stones. Some fallen stones are completely covered by ivy, by bindweed. Seedling trees reach ambitiously towards the sky at the feet of their enormous mothers. Nature patiently, relentlessly, weaving her slow fabric over the strange folly of mankind, who create monuments to the dead which might stand two hundred times longer than the deceased lived, which might be legible for decades after the last cell of those named have dissolved completely and irretrievably into the dirt. The dead can be grouped roughly into three age groups under 16, early 20s, and 60 plus. I have read somewhere that the first person buried here was 15 months old, and that was certainly a theme. Many stones bear a litany of siblings, gone in infancy or a little beyond, a carved demonstration of the desperate need for infant vaccines. Some families lose a child a year for four or more years in a row, one or two lose six or more children in a single month, usually coinciding with a major influenza or typhus outbreak. The war graves here are all young men, ages 18 to 24. Who knows if their actual bones are here beneath the stones or lying in a field out on mainland Europe somewhere. Sometimes I think it is an insult to reduce the lives of these boys who lost everything over someone else's greed and rage to a rank. Everything they were and could have been distilled into their regiment, their almost meaningless designation on the day they lost it all. The older ones are often the grandest. Old tobacco merchants and slave traders, living in wealth into an old age almost as long as their modern descendants, 78, 81, 85. I have my favorites amongst the stones. The ones I like to stop and read almost every time I pass them, which is most days. And it was at one of these favorites that I had my mishap today. I got here early, just after dawn, went immediately across the corner of the central space to the western gate, and, checking the coast was clear of others, let my boys off to maraud among the graves. It's nearly October, and a thin, chill mist, not quite a frost, clung in the dips and hollows between the gravestones, swirling as the dogs bounced through. I walked slowly, periodically rattling my box of dried liver treats to summon them back and remind them that I exist, that I am, if only nominally, and because of my little tub of awful resources, in charge. We went all around the western graveyard, which is both the best and the worst. The best, because it is so large, and being opened last, most open. By its opening in 1850, the governing body had decided to limit trees. The worst, because it feels a little bare, stark. The oldest section, opened in 1840, is almost woodland now. I like the intimacy of that woodland, though, so this feels exposed by comparison. Still, I can see the gate from almost everywhere here, 
which allows me to let the dogs run free more safely. We traversed the path that runs around the boundary wall until we were at the gate again, and then ducked through to walk around the central section. This is more densely wooded, and with three gates for people to enter and less visibility, I didn't risk leaving the dogs off the lead. Even on days like this, today, when it seems lonelier and emptier than usual. One of them pads at heel, having expended his energy already on his first burst of galloping. The other runs out and back over and over like a hairy yo-yo, anxious to get back to the business of sniffing out squirrels. We go around the perimeter again, around the top to the eastern gate. Again, I look through, checking for company, and seeing none, I let the dogs off. This is my favorite section. Smallest, most wild, most decaying, too. A marble woman reaches a hand blindly towards me, her fingers all gone. A carved, cupped hand contains a small puddle of water which a sparrow is washing in until I come too near. When it's abandoned, it's ablutions for the refuge of the ivy nearby. I stopped at my favorite grave. I know, how creepy am I? But it tells a story that both pains and fascinates me. In Gothic script, it says it was erected by Daniel McFarlane in memory of his parents, William, who died March 15, 1883, aged 69, and Margaret, who died 20th of June, 1866, aged 54. But that's not the story. The story is written below. And also, for their children, Neil died 21 March 1846, aged two years, and Neil died 4th of February 1858, aged three years. The two Neils, I call it in my head. The grave of the two Neils. Perhaps it isn't unusual to name a child after a lost sibling, but the tragedy of losing them both strikes me every time I pass and read it. I wonder if they wished they had retired the name instead of reusing it when the second one perished. But then, for all I know, there are three more Neils who lived. There was a Daniel, after all, who survived to erect the stone. As I was pondering the Neils, the dog, the squirrel fancier, came trotting up and looked up at me. They should have retired the name, I said to him. He cocked his head at me, his tongue hanging goofily from one side of his mouth. Then his brother, always looking for a chase and willing to assist upon one, came barreling in to bait him, but missed and knocked into me instead. I staggered and threw my hands out as I lost my balance. My fingertips found the cold edge of the next headstone in a row, a tall granite obelisk erected by a William Armand for his wife Mary and their infant son John, who left the earth together in April 1865, presumably due to complications arising from John's birth. It stands at around a 60-degree angle to the ground, their obelisk, and for a second I felt it might tumble with me. But as I continued my own journey towards the ground, my fingertips slipped from the edge, and then I was in the grass. As I landed, 
I banged my head on the corner of the flat ledger stone monument to Archibald Gray, in Jesus he rests, and lay dazed for a moment, looking up at the sky. I am middle-aged, which isn't old enough to have a fall as opposed to just falling over, but is too old to take it breezily. It was quite a spill, and my body felt shocked and quivery. I sat up carefully, testing all my limbs, which seemed, apart from the adrenalized weakness, to be okay. It had started to rain then, a gloomy gray drizzle hanging in the air, like sitting inside a cloud, the droplets barely falling, but soaking me all the same. I got shakily to my feet, dusted myself off, and looked around for the dogs, but I couldn't see them. Bloody typical. Knock me over, then bugger off and leave me. I called for them, but even my voice sounded weak and trembling. Thin. I retraced my steps, expecting to see them at any moment, but soon I had been all around all three areas and they were nowhere to be found. I rattled my treat box, shouted and shouted, but they didn't appear. I decided they must have left by themselves, run home. They had done it once, years ago, gone after a bitch, and finally dissuaded by the chain lead, swung aggressively by her owner, decided to go back to the house instead. Sighing, I hunched my shoulders against the continuing drizzle and set off. It wasn't far, as I was soon back in my kitchen. Erica was there already, drinking coffee and looking at the clock. Hi, I said as I came in. The bloody dogs ran off again, knocked me over, and did a runner when I was getting myself back together. Erica didn't look at me. She was gazing out the window now, a small frown wrinkling her brow. Where are they? She asked after a bit. Well, I don't know. I was hoping they'd come back here, I said, following her gaze. But there was nothing there, no dogs coming through our garden. Should I go look for them? Erica said, tapping her fingernails on the worktop, still not looking in my direction. No, I said. You go on to work. I've not got anything on this morning. I I can't wait. Oh. I'll go and look for them. Erica continued to look pensively out the window. I turned to go back out again, and the fruit bowl caught my eye. Weird. This morning when I came in and grabbed the dog's leads, it had been full of shiny red apples, slightly green bananas, and four or five fat yellowish satsumas. It was only a couple hours ago, but already the fruit was starting to go over. The bananas were molted brown. The apples' peels had dulled and wrinkled. The satsumas had all shriveled slightly, hardened, as if they'd been there a couple weeks. I sniffed and realized I could smell it, the slightly cloying scent of fruit going bad. Wow, this fruit is going over fast, I said absentmindedly to Erica. We better have a fruit salad after dinner tonight and use it up before it completely rots. I will go out and look for them, Erica announced, standing suddenly so her chair scraped noisily across the flagged floor. No, 
I began. Honestly, you go to work. I'll go out again. They won't have gone far, and... But she was gone, without even glancing at me. I was left, staring after her as she slammed out of the house, pulling her jacket on as she went. That was a bit shit, I thought. It's annoying when they do a runner like this, but it's not like I lost them on purpose. Besides, they're fairly streetwise, and the roads are quiet around here. They won't come to any real harm. Still, I suppose Erica did worry more than me, as a rule. I disliked it, though, when she acted as if I was incompetent. I soon set off again by myself, deciding two was better than one when it came to search parties. The gray drizzle continued, and I turned my collar up as I walked, feeling the cold penetrating my damp clothes. I didn't have a strong sense of where I was going, and I decided to head towards my dad's old place. He'd been dead for a few years, but I'm sure the eldest dog remembered our weekly walks there and the sausage rolls my old dad always had, warm and flaky, ready for us arriving. It's possible he'd head there. It was about a half-hour walk, and I felt chilled to the bone by the time I got there. Standing at the fence, I saw to my disappointment that the new people weren't taking care of the place like my dad had. It was a little cottage, with roses around the door and leaded glass in the windows. My dad had kept it sparkling and neat in his day. He'd spent every day tending the garden and kept his windows clean and his paths weed-free. But now it looked almost derelict. The windows were coated with grime, and some of the letting was loose and curling away from the edges of the little panes of the windows. The roses around the door had withered and died, and were hanging in sad, decaying ribbons around the door. The one's shiny green door now flaking and spongy-looking. The door handle hung straight down as if the mechanism inside had broken. Tall, dead weeds grew out of every crack in the path. The gate hung drunkenly from one hinge. So sad. I rattled my treats and called the dogs' names, but they weren't here. I took a last mournful look at the house in its state of neglect and disrepair, then turned away and began to walk again. I walked for a long time. I somehow felt at times that I'd forgotten what I was doing, and would recall suddenly with a jolt why I was out there and hurriedly resume my rattling and shouting. I didn't see the dogs. I didn't see anyone. The streets were empty. Litter rolled wetly along the pavements, pushed by a cold breeze. The rain clung, still barely falling, to my clothes and hair and face. Soon I was so cold I felt I was made of it too. I'd been wandering a long time when I looked up and was taken aback to see I was standing outside our old house, the one I'd grown up in. Good lord, I thought. I've walked 11 miles? Surely not. But here I was. The dogs had never been here. We'd sold the place when I was 20. So God knows why I'd come here. The site was even sadder than Dad's old cottage. The garden was a festering, moldy pile of plant debris. An apple tree, dead but covered with rotting fruit, stood guard gnarled and hostile in the center of a brown, tangled, overgrown and dying lawn. The planks of an old shed, now collapsed, poked jaggedly towards the sky. 
their lower extremities sporting clumps of toxic-looking fungi. The house was in a terrible state. There was a gaping hole in the roof, which the rain poured steadily into, broken tiles clinging to the edges like the decaying teeth of a polluted mouth. Half the window frames had rotten completely out, and the glass had fallen, so that as I stared, the house seemed to stare malevolently back, eyeless and terrible. Feeling a sudden sense of intense, devastating loss, I turned my gaze from the awful scene and ambled away. As I came some hours later into my street, I saw a police car was parked outside the house. Oh, shit. What have those bloody dogs done? They couldn't have bitten anyone, surely. The younger one could be a bit nervy, but only when he was on the lead. Never off it. Maybe they'd knocked someone over, though, I thought. Someone else. Inside, I found everyone in the hall. The officers getting ready to leave already. Thanks, Erica was saying. It's just been hours now, and they never do this. Hi, I said. But apart from a fleeting second of eye contact from one of the officers, nobody really responded. Stay here, by the phone. The other one was saying to Erica, and we'll, we'll stay in touch. You know, try not to panic yet. It's not been that long and in the scheme of things. If there's no sign by this evening, we can escalate things. Thanks, Erica said. She closed the door after them and stood resting her forehead on it for a few seconds. I reached out to put a comforting hand on her back, but before I could, she turned and went through the kitchen into the little utility room. I followed her in to find her pulling wet washing from the machine. Erica, I began, stepping towards her. But then the smell hit me and I stopped. The towels that she was pulling from the machine stank. As if they'd been in there, in there, wet for a month. A cloying, choking stench of damp. A mold and decomposition. Jesus! I yelped, covering my nose. Those are rank. Is there something wrong with the machine? Erica didn't answer. She just went on pulling the vile towels out into the washing basket. Erica, look, I began again, just wanting her to engage with me, to understand that I didn't lose the dogs deliberately, that I was sorry I'd caused her the worry, the hassle. But right then... Her mobile rang, and she snatched it from her pocket, answered it immediately. Hello? She said into it, turning away. I looked sadly at the back of her head. No, no sign yet, she was saying into the thing. I don't know. I, I, I tried where I could think, uh, but who knows? I know. Yep. Yes, I, I, I will. Thanks, Mick. Thanks. Yep. No, thank you very much. Bye. She disconnected the call, but then stood staring down at the black screen as if willing it to light up again. Oh, Erica. I love you. I thought. I'm so sorry. That feeling of devastation, of terrible loss, came over me again. Maybe they've been hit by a car, I thought. Maybe it's a, a, an intuition. 
Erica was now cramming the stinking towels into the dryer, and I felt my stomach churn a bit at the sight of them. Some of them were brownish, spotted with mildew. I backed away into the kitchen again and sat down at the table, feeling bereft. Erica joined me a moment later. I watched as she filled the kettle, took down two mugs, then paused, pushed one aside, dropping a tea bag into the other. Fuck's sake! This is a bit much. I've lost the dogs, okay, but it's hardly the crime of the century. There's no need to act like this. Erica, for God's sake, I began, but before it was fully out of my mouth, her bloody phone rang again and again. She snatched it up. Hello? She almost fell over the word. It came out so fast. It became evident a few words in that it was the police. As she spoke to them, I noticed the fruit bowl again. The fruit had completely rotten now. The satsumas were smudgy, grayish spheres, thick with mold. The apples wet brown mounds, collapsing into one another. Laid on top, the bananas clutched them all like a wizened, blackening claw. The stink of rot clung on there, too. I looked up at Erica, wondering how she could possibly have failed to notice. She was still talking to the police. As she was talking, she poured water from the steaming kettle onto the tea bag, went to the fridge, and opened it. I stood then, and standing behind her, saw that it wasn't just a fruit. Everything in the fridge was in a state of advanced, festering decay. Cheese leaked onto the shelves from mold-filled packets. A cucumber slumped, wetly deflated and browning inside its plastic wrap. Something that might have been chicken breasts once lurked rancidly liquefying inside the bloated packet on the bottom shelf. I let out a small moan of disgust, but Erica was unmoved. She took a bottle of greenish, chunky milk from the door and glopped some of it into her mug of brewing tea. This made me gag, but she didn't react to that either. Hate waiting here, she was saying into the phone. Then her eyes slid briefly onto my face. Someone should be out looking for them. She finished, pointedly, and then she turned away again, back to her vile tea. Fucking fine! If that's how she wants to play it. I stormed down the hall and slammed out of the house, pulling the door hard behind me. When I got to the gate, I heard the front door open again, a pause, then Erica's voice. No, she said, her voice full of sadness and worry. I I thought I heard something. I, I thought I heard the door. No, it was nothing. It, it wasn't them. The door closed softly again and I shook my head, turned my soaking collar up again, and set off through the rain. I went back to the graveyard. It seemed unlikely that they'd be back there all these hours later, but I was at a loss as to where else I could try. It was the golden hour, but in this smear there was no gold, only a hint of the gathering dusk as a light shifted down a gloomier pitch behind the ominous cloud I was still walking through. I felt miserable chilled to the bone, both by the rain and by Erica's coldness towards me, and adrift without my stupid, beloved dogs. The terrible surging sense of loss had waned a little, but the edges of it lapped near, ready to engulf me again. What a bizarre and awful day. 
The way Erica had treated me was the worst of it, totally out of character for her as well. She was a shouter, not a blanker. It reminded me of my mate Brian and his wife Michelle. That's how she had gone, cold and indifferent. It had seemed gradual to me, the coldness, like it had crept over the space between them with the stealth and inevitability of a change of season. But Erica had disagreed. She had said it was the baby, the youngest. It wasn't too hot before then, she said. But that was what finally did it. That's when the rot set in, with him being so useless when they had Marcus. I stopped in my tracks. The rot? That's when the rot had set in. How odd to think of that now. Slowly, I began to walk again, shuddering a little. I didn't want it in my marriage, I thought. This rot. I would reverse it. I wouldn't let it consume us. Back in the graveyard, I walked my usual route. The west side was completely empty. I could see that much from the gate. But I went in anyway, as I had that morning. I rattled my treats and shouted their names and looked at my favorite stones as I went. I cut around the top of the central part, stopping to notice that the apples growing here, though crowded and undersized, were firm and ripening. I saw them as soon as I went through the eastern gate. There they were, near the top row, the elder sitting, the younger standing, both staring at something in the grass. I shouted them again. I rattled but they didn't look my way at all. I found a drunk here once, me and the dogs, asleep behind a screen of ivy. He had tucked himself away some time in the night, I suppose, feeling it was a safe and tranquil spot to sleep it off, only to be awoken a few hours later by my eldest jumping directly onto his chest, woofing, and the youngest looking frantically at his face. He had been good-humored about it, once he'd woken up properly, petted them, and waved my apologies away before heaving himself to his feet and shuffling off. Maybe they'd found him again, I thought. Or another one. I was always surprised that more homeless people didn't sleep here. It was something of a sanctuary, full of hiding places and sheltered corners, and quite close to the city center, really. I made my way along the path towards them, and sure enough, I could see someone was lying in the grass there. I quickened my pace a little, absent-mindedly, feeling my pockets for my phone, thinking I might need to call an ambulance for whoever it was. Oh, it was a terrible thing. I got level with them and saw what had happened. There in the grass, stretched out, prone, lay a person. They were beside my favorite stone, actually on the grave of the two Niles. Their jeans looked damp, their trousers too, and there was a little tub of something clutched in one of their hands, imprisoned behind the bars of their stiffened fingers. Their face I couldn't see, because where their head should have been, there was only the tall granite obelisk of Mary and baby John Armin, laying across the corner of the Archibald Gray's flat ledger stone. The head was between them, between the stones, though I could see from where I stood the space there was only perhaps an inch, definitely not head size. The grass around the place where the stones crossed was black with blood. I felt for my phone again, wondering when I'd last had it. Funny, 
I thought. They've fallen exactly where I fell. I wondered if my dogs had knocked them down there too. Imagine two people on the same day having the same fall at the same spot. And I mean, it was completely the same. Their head was lying exactly on the corner where I'd hit my head. Their head. Oh. There was a shout behind me then, and without looking at me, the dogs rose and streaked away. I turned back to the gate to see Erica and several police officers in high-vis vests coming through. Oh. I looked back at it then. The terrible thing. My own body stretched out across the grave of the two Neils. The sun had come out, I realized, and I was bathed with golden light. Despite the late hour, I felt the warmth of it penetrating, lifting the chill I'd endured all day, flowing its slow, warm gold into me, syrupy and nourishing, thawing every corner. They were shouting again then, and I turned back towards it, The dogs were coming, and a long way behind them, Erica was screaming, staggering. As I watched, the police officer stepped against her, his arms around her, holding her up. And there it was again, that terrible, devastating sense of loss. A million words unspoken, a million embraces never given or received, the powerful, unslaked thirst for an imagined future I'd been leaning on so heavily, suddenly whisked away. My back felt hot in the golden light now, as if I had turned it to a crackling fire or snuggled it against some enormous friendly animal. I loved them, Erica. Those dogs? Those dogs reached me again, stopped and looked at me. Not the terrible thing on the ground, but me, where I stood. They wagged and writhed as if they'd not seen me in a week. And then as Erica screamed and sobbed, they turned merrily, almost dancing, and bounded back towards her. The gold has filled me up, right to the brim now. And it is love. It overspills as my own love for Erica, and the dogs, and my friends, and my parents, and my sister, and all the people and places and things I had loved join it. It isn't just the sum of the love, but the moments of it. Every loving moment, again, vivid and full all at once. My mother's hushed lullaby, my father's huge warm hand folding around mine, the fierce knotted passion of childhood friendship, the ecstatic pain of loving, the giver and receiver of my first kiss, the delighted wonder of holding my nieces and nephew as newborns, the sighing Erica in my arms in the dark, turning to smile at me on our wedding day, kissing me goodbye as she left for work. All the love I have ever loved, it pours from me, a tidal wave of heat washing towards the advancing group. I can't hear them anymore, though I can see they are calling out to one another. One officer talking into his radio, another coming closer, a third still holding Erica upright, saying gentle words to her. His stoic face close to hers which is twisted in pain and disbelief. 
I want so much to go to her. To pull her into the gold with me so she can be bathed too. But I know I can't. I know the world is growing and changing and flowing onwards for her. But not for me. There's nothing left here for me. For me, the rot has set in. So, turning for the last time, I lift my face to its fierce and splendid glow and walk on into the light. was written by Beck Stranger and narrated by Nicholas Richardson. For more stories that haunt, as well as a behind-the-scenes look at what we do and why we do it, you can join our Patreon at patreon slash pleaseleavepod. You can follow Please Leave on Facebook and Instagram at pleaseleavepod. Our email is pleaseleavepod at gmail.com and our website is pleaseleavepod.com. This has been a Please Leave Media Production. 